The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning we are continuing on our study of the book of the Apostles' Creed. And that we're looking, and this week we are going to be looking at the statement, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Next week, uh, moving on, I'm excited that the next couple of weeks you'll get to hear from Matt Scott and from Andrew Shank. I'll be leaving on Saturday uh, to go back to Cape Town, South Africa, to uh, serve there with a group of faithful local pastors who have no formal training, no true understanding of how to study God's Word and then to take from the study of God's Word uh, the creation of a lesson or of a sermon. And so I get the privilege of going and serving these faithful men and women uh, who are there. Uh, The church in Africa is exploding, uh, mainly through the Anglican uh, tradition. And so I'll be with these uh, brothers and sisters. So if you would pray for me, uh, both on the journey over, it's 18 hours in the air, Uh, which should be a lot of fun. My son, Zach, is going to be able to go with me and serve in some capacities while we're over there. And he looked at me and he goes, what do we do for 18 hours? I was like, sleep, watch every movie possible, pace up and down. And uh, so I'm excited to be with him. And so thank you for the privilege of going. Uh, Then next week, I'll be back in about 10 days. But this week, I'm excited to talk about this small topic, the Holy Spirit in 30 minutes or more. I'm not going to say less. I'm never less. And so uh, we're going to look at this, I believe, in the Holy Spirit, looking at the Apostles' Creed, which is a creed of the church, a statement of the church, historic in its origins, that the early church fathers put it together for the purpose of instruction and for spiritual formation, the correction of error, uh, helping the church, as it were, uh, to develop a consistent theology and dogma uh, over time in its doctrinal uh, views. And it helped us, and we've said over the course of time, uh, to give us balance and symmetry within our lives. Too often uh, we, we look like that person who is at the gym, the man who uh, looks like the upside-down pear with two a toothpick stuck in the bottom that he loves to lift and power lift and his upper body is so strong but his legs are tiny and you could knock him over with a simple push. Wouldn't try it, but you could try. Theoretically, it works. And we're like that. We, we believe in God the Father. We love God the Father. We love the theology of God. Oh, but some of us love Christ and we're all about Christ. And we forget about the Holy Spirit. And the Apostles' Creed forces us to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. A Trinitarian view that gives us symmetry and balance within our doctrine. It helps us with clarity of what is the role of the Spirit. What is the role uh, of the church? What does it mean uh, for Christ to have come and be fully man and fully God? All of these clarifying things. It defines our community. We know who believes likewise with us and to say, we believe together, therefore we can stand together uh, as we lead this and live this Christian life in the world, the culture that God has given us in which to live. And then it counsels our hearts. We counsel ourselves and we counsel other people uh, with these things. The creed in and of itself has no value, as we've said. The scriptures have the value. The scriptures have the light and power and radiance uh, of God's word, and it's reflected off of the Apostles' Creed. So make sure you understand, Bible here, creed here. 
that everything that comes uh, from the creed comes from the scriptures. And so we're teaching the scripture today, especially from John 14. And that's what we're going to look at in a moment. But I'm going to ask you now to stand, as we've said, in a simultaneous act of rebellion and of allegiance, of saying that we ally ourselves with God in these things that we believe, and we rebel, we defy all the other creeds of our day uh, which present something contrary to the Scriptures. And so, printed in your bulletin, you can look on the screen all you like, not going to be there. You can try it by memory, but I have a feeling that you memorized a different version. So we've printed it here in the front of your bulletin uh, for you. So with the saints and believers, our family around the world this weekend, I'll ask you this question. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The passage and piece of the the creed that we're looking at today. And the text is one of many texts. We are in no way having an exhaustive discussion this morning uh, about the Holy Spirit. But the text that we're going to look at this morning comes from the Gospel of John, from Jesus' upper room discourse, his last communications with the disciples before he went out and was betrayed and delivered over to Pontius Pilate to suffer, to die, to be buried, to be raised. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me and listen to the Word of the Lord. If you love me, beginning in verse 15... If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be beloved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot. I love that part, by the way. You can tell he was probably talking to John. Make sure they know who I am. I'm not the Iscariot guy. It's such a human document in some ways, isn't it? Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that we will manifest yourself? How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. This part of the creed gives us the completion of the profession of our profession of the Trinity. That we believe in God the Father Almighty. Immediately I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And then the long explanation of the incarnational work of Jesus. And then back to the profession, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Notice how the creed moves from the creating work of the Father to the rescuing work of the Son and then to the recreating work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who works in us to bring to bear the benefits of Christ's work and to make us into new creations. We use the language Holy Spirit in the more modern translation. The classic translation says Holy Ghost. It is the Old English word that is a good translation of the word from the Scripture. But in our day and age, the word ghost makes you think of Casper or of something more sinister. And that's not what the Holy Spirit is. And so we use spirit versus ghost. There is a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit in today's church. Some think the Spirit is an it, a thing, a force that's out there and not a person Uh, Others think that the Holy Spirit can only be defined and understood uh, within what would be the charismatic movement uh, and the charismatic gifts and those traits that come and are given by the Spirit to the believer. Others equate the Holy Spirit with emotionalism and spontaneity, and those are terrible things. Uh, Others think that and remove the Holy Spirit altogether, uh, oftentimes within their doctrine And they miss the beauty of the biblical text that informs us of what he does. One way to think of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is the executive officer or the COO of the Trinity. What he does is he takes and is the active person carrying out the designs of the Father, applying the benefits of the Son to all of His people. He's taking the completed work of Christ under the design of the Father and the plan of salvation, and He's executing it into the lives of the believer. That He's applying that work, that He is active in our lives. And so we need to understand what does it mean that I believe in the Holy Spirit? I'll use an example that I used many years ago. The gospel has certain lyrics. We know the words of the gospel. That Jesus Christ died. That he was buried. Descended. Hell, that he suffered. That he rose from the dead. And that we're adopted as sons and daughters. That we've been given these things. They're lyrics. They're lyrics like this song... Uh, by the times of beach music. If you're not familiar with beach music, it's from, I hope you are if you're moved to the low country. But Miss Grace, a good biblical song. And the lyrics go something like this. Ooh, 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 Miss Grace. Satin and perfume and lace. The minute I saw your face, I knew that I loved you. Doesn't that just make you want to dance hearing me say that? But you see, lyrics were always designed to be wed to music. So Chris, see what you think now. 
some of you are actually moving. It's okay in church. Do you see the difference? You take lyrics, you wed them with a melody, and a song explodes. That life is given through it. That you're invited onto the dance floor to come in and to dance. And the gospel is the same way. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, I would posit to you today, is the music of the gospel. It it takes the lyric, it, it takes the very clear statements of Scripture, and it brings them to life. It gives you a melody. It gives you a song. It does something within your soul that leads you to want to dance. Yes, you stoic old Presbyterians, you just are moved somewhere down inside to go, hey, this is good. I tell young couples when I do premarital counseling with them, I don't want you to have a marriage that just makes it. I don't want you to just get to 50 years and go, well, it sort of stunk, but we made it. It's golden. Woohoo! No, we want a marriage, I say, that sings. A marriage that comes together and your heart comes alive. That in the 30th year, in the 40th year, in the 65th year of that marriage, whatever it is, that it's alive. That the relationships that you have with one another, they sing. That your heart sings together in life. And that the church is the collective body of individuals who not only know the lyric, but have the music of the Spirit moving within them that leads them to dance and to sing. Do you think that would be more attractive to the world? You ever gone to a dance and everybody's a wallflower? And then the music starts and some brave couple or soul or a couple of folks just step out onto the dance floor? And they begin to dance. And other people are drawn to that activity. And all of a sudden, the entire place is dancing and singing. The church is supposed to be that. It's supposed to be humanity, revived by the work of the Spirit, given new life in Christ, designed by God to go out onto the dance floor of this creation that we have been given and celebrate more than anybody else. By the way, Christians should party more and better than any other group in the world, but just do it biblically. Christ's first miracle was where? At a party. Why? Because He wanted to say, I'm the Lord of the dance. I'm the Lord of the celebration. When you apply my hour, which he said, it's not my hour yet, Mom. He chastised Mary, if you remember. He said, my hour has not yet come, but one day it will come. And when my hour comes, and everybody knows who I am, and they come into the power and the full fellowship of the Spirit that applies my life, death, and resurrection to them, then there's a wedding feast. Then the best of the food and the best of the wine and the best of the music come, and we dance and we sing. I wonder why not more people why more people aren't attracted to well, I love Jesus. <laughs> That's about it. The Holy Spirit. It takes the beauty of Christ's work and says, I haven't left you alone, and I'm going to apply it to your life, and it's going to change you forever. You're going to be different. So today we're going to look at just a couple of things. 
Again, not exhaustive. I'm not going to deal with the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I'm not going to deal with uh, some other dynamics of the Spirit. I'm going to look from this passage at a few things that I believe the Holy Spirit was given to us by Christ, uh, left here for us, sent by Christ and the Father to us here. And the first thing, I believe, is He was trying to communicate to us that you are adopted into the family of God. That he's taking the truth of adoption and he's boring it down and he's saying, now this, don't just say you're a son or daughter of God. All of you would probably say, yeah, I get it, I'm a son or a daughter of God. But do you bask in that? Does it make you step out onto the dance floor and go, that's my father who art in heaven. My dad who is the ruler of the universe. My older brother Jesus who is my savior. This is my family. And I today am going to live in the full measure of what it means to be a child of God. So many of us don't. And Jesus says right here in verse 18, I will not. You see, he's teaching on this last night that he's leaving. That's what he's teaching about. He's saying, guys, I'm leaving you. I'm not going to be with you much longer. Forty-three days, as a matter of fact. That's all I'm going to be with you. And three of those days, I'm going to be uh, in the tomb. I'm not going to be with you. You will have run from me. But then I'll be with you for 40 days. And then I'm going to be ascended. And I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And so I'm not going to be here anymore. And they were going, what in the world? What are we going to do with this absence? What are we going to do without you? You've been right next to us for three years, Jesus. We could touch you. We could, we could feel you. We could smell you. We knew you. We knew everything about you. And now you're going to be gone. He says, I'm not going to leave you, listen to the language, as an orphan. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you with no family orientation. I'm not going to leave you. You see, orphans so often work out of a spirit of insecurity and of jealousy, of the loss of parents or of the rejection of parents, that they spend their lives wondering whether they're loved. And being jealous of others who have things that they don't have. This is a broad generalization, but some of the traits that may show up in an orphan mentality. Orphans very often are never convinced that they're loved. But they're always guessing. They're hoping against hope. But they're wondering if they're ever truly loved. Orphans often feel the need to prove themselves to others, to earn what they have. There's no such thing as a free lunch. She or he is driven by success that this will validate me. This will show that I'm valuable uh, in the world, what I accomplish, what I do. And it just drives the orphan mentality. Spiritually speaking, that happens within the spiritual orphan as well. That for many of you, you still work out of an orphan mentality that says, I don't know if I'm fully and truly and inexhaustibly loved by God the Father. I wonder if I have what it takes. That I've got to prove myself every single day that I'm worthy of His love. I'm going to prove to everybody around me that I'm a good person, that I'm a good Christian, that dadgummit, I'm going to do these things. And when someone else succeeds, jealousy just riles up within you because you can't celebrate the good things in someone else's life because all you're consumed by is what's not happening in your life. That there is a profound sense of deep anger and resentment that builds in the spiritual orphan. And you realize this, 
And the scriptures pounded home your very best. What you offer, and we should present our very best to the Lord, but our very best is not enough. It is insufficient at the end of the day to merit the love and the favor of God. And so the solution of our best not being good enough in all these different areas is solved in the adopting work of the Holy Spirit via the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. They're saying you'll never be good enough, but you're loved. What you bring to the table is insufficient, but what God brings to the table is fully sufficient. And He adopts you. He legally and lovingly adopts you as His daughter, as His son. You are now different because you're His. That you are His child. That He truly is my Father who art in heaven. And Christ is your elder brother. He is the one who in the family you look to and all of the inheritance of heaven was His. He earned it by birthright. He gained it. And it's His. But you know what this elder brother does? Unlike the elder brother of Luke 15, the elder brother of Luke 15 resented the younger brother for coming into the family, back into the family. He resented that there was a party, that there was music and a celebration and the fatted uh, goat had been, had been slain. He hated it. We have an elder brother who says, it's all yours. I give it all away. I hold nothing for myself. The most generous and incredible elder brother you'll ever know in your life. And we realize that now, that in this adoption as the family of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells with you. In verse 17, it says that He makes His tabernacle with us, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you. Uh, Later, it says that He makes His home with you. Isn't that awesome to think? That the God of the universe is making His home with you. Think about that for a moment. Does that make you feel good or scared? I've often thought that it would be a great idea to bless my wife with a home cleaning service. Until I realized what a horrible idea that is. The week leading up to it would be so much cleaning on our part because we can't let anybody know that we have a dirty house and that you want everything clean before anybody comes in to clean. So the amount of work I would have to do to clean the toilet bowl and then pay someone to clean the clean toilet would be ridiculous. So that's why I've never given that to you. It's all about me. And now God is saying, I want to dwell in your house. I'm going to see what's in your closets. I'm going to see what's in your cabinets. I know what's in your attic and in your basement. I'm going to look under the rug. I'm going to come in and I'm going to dwell with you. And the reason that I want to dwell with you is that I want to go into all of those secret places that you have worked your entire life to hide, to lock away, because you know that if they get unlocked, they will overwhelm you with shame and self-contempt and self-loathing. That you know that if anybody ever knows, and all of you have something that you hide. I confess certain things to you up here, but those are pastoral confessions. Do not think for a moment I'm confessing everything to you. There are things that I will not and cannot confess publicly. Things that carry deep and profound shame. And God is saying, I've adopted you, Bill. I've adopted you, church. I've adopted you. And I'm going to dwell in your house with you. Not to make you uncomfortable. Not to just come in and start looking through and going, whoa, wow. 
God doesn't flinch. Isn't that awesome? Christians flinch too much, by the way. Because a broken world and broken believers come and we say, this is my life. This is what I did when I was 17. This is what I did this morning. This is what happened to me last week. And Christians go, ooh, the minute you flinch, you have shut down that conversation. God never flinches. He says, I want to tabernacle with you. I want to dwell in your house with you. We're a family together. We live together. You've been adopted as my child. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of Sonship, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Isn't that awesome? That everything that God has is now yours by birthright. Not by what you've done to earn it. But because you were born into the family of God through the work, the amazing, miraculous grace of the Holy Spirit. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound, because I know that I could never earn this. That all I have to offer are my locked closets. And what Christ has to offer is His perfection and righteousness given to me. It's an orphan's wildest dream. To be loved that way. To come into this family. My mother is in town this week. And she was adopted by a family And I believe I have the story right, or at least it's how I remember it, that at her grandparents' house, for as wonderful as they may be or were, she wasn't able to sit at the table with the other grandchildren because she was adopted. That's an orphan mentality. God doesn't invite you in and say, hey, the good saints get to sit over here, the good people get to sit over here. McCutcheon, you just get relegated over here with all of this group. No, you're all at the same table. It says that heaven is this incredible feast table with God our Father at the head and all of the saints from all times there with Him. What a picture! No second class citizen, no second class, no second class child in this family. You see, you have been invited not into the Trinity, but rather into the family of God where the overflow of the joy the overflow of the peace and the grace of the Trinity is experienced within the heart of the believer. Everything that Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father are enjoying together within that beautiful union of the Trinity is now yours in overflow. Do you think they enjoy being together? Do you think there's joy there? And contentment and peace and music that sings of the beauty of the dawn and of creation and of what is to be and what is to come? He says, all that's yours through the work of the Holy Spirit within your life. That you're adopted. You're not an orphan anymore. And because of that, the second thing, you're adopted. You're no longer an orphan. That's what the Spirit applies to us. Now what the Spirit begins to do is as that adopted, beautiful child of God 
you're beginning to be changed. Your traits change. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that we will manifest your, you, how you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and he will come to me and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In a family, you take on family traits. McCutcheon boys have certain traits of a McCutcheon family. I was at the house yesterday, and I, my back hurt, and I moved in such a way. And Lisa goes, oh, my goodness. And I'm like, what? She goes, that movement, it looked just like your mom and just like Matthew simultaneously. I was like, yeah, it's a McCutcheon trait, I guess. All the McCutcheon men, dashingly handsome, wonderful, great guys. I mean, it's just traits. You just can't help it. No, but we, we have traits from our families. We have nuances of language and speech and of how we act and, and what we do. And it's the same way in the family of God. That the traits and the characteristics of the believer, of the child of God, begin to manifest themselves in the life of the believer. I want you to see here that obedience that that Jesus is talking about is not driven by fear, but it is driven by love. That it is not motivated by discipline, although if you love something, you're disciplined in it, right? If you love golf, you're going to be disciplined in golf to learn and to do it better. If you love your work, if you love music, I listen to these musicians up here. And to know the hours that it took of discipline for them by, because they loved it. And they're motivated by love. And it's the same way here. You are adopted, therefore you obey. Therefore you begin to bear the traits of the family. You do not bear the traits of the family first in order to be adopted. Many people have that reversed. And you are working hard to clean yourself up and to quit doing certain things and to start doing other things, hoping against hope that maybe if you just get a little better looking, a little better presentable to the world and to God, then maybe He'll adopt you. Maybe He'll quit adopting every other orphan that's in the orphanage of this world and He'll finally come and say, okay, you danced well enough, uh, you sang well enough, you performed well enough, you cleaned yourself well enough, Good, Billy, you can come into the kingdom and be my kid. No, that's exhausting. He says this, I've loved you from before the foundation of time. Folks, I'm just going to posit it here for you to wrestle with. If salvation is based upon anything else other than God's free grace, then it's us performing to gain adoption. But it is God's incredible, loving grace that looked upon unloving, undeserving us and said, I'm going to adopt you as my son or daughter. And then you know what happens to us? We begin to change. What does it look like to live within the house of God? Paul goes, well, I'd say this. I'm glad you asked. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Other places it adds disobedience to parents just to speak to kids today. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Don't act like orphans. He's saying this. If you are an adopted child of God, there's going to be a battle in you. That old orphan self, that old man, that old woman, with all of its sensualities, with all of its pursuits of other desires, with all of these other things, is going to be dying. It has been killed, but it is dying, both the now and the not yet. And then there's this new man who is created. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus, created for good works in Him. And it is now saying, I want to see these things. I want the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and all these things. I guess self-control against these things. There isn't a law. So we see these things. But right in the middle is this battle. You have two desiring centers. You realize that, right? Right? (laughs) Okay. If you don't, you're in trouble. If there's no battle, you should be really worried. That's what Paul's saying. Because when you become an adopted child of God, all of a sudden you're going, I want to live for the king. I want to look like my father. I want to look like my older brother. I want to look like some of my, some of my other brothers and sisters. Others of them, not so much. But we're all going to kind of work together towards being like this great God who is now our father. And I don't want to pursue all these other medicines for my soul. But I'm going to pursue Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the flesh does not die easily, by the way. There is a misconception that as you grow older, the flesh becomes weaker. That is a lie. Ask an older saint who takes these things seriously, and they will let you know that the flesh is still fighting hard every step of the way, even into the grave. But what we find is that the Spirit is alive and well within the believer, and that we begin to look more and more like our Father. You see, no one goes to hell because of sexual immorality or idolatry or sensuality. No one goes to hell for cussing or cheating on their taxes. That's not why anyone would ever go to hell. The reason that anyone goes to hell is because they've rejected Jesus Christ and the offer of the gospel. And these actions are the actions that reflect a heart that rejects the offer of the gospel. So we're not going to be perfect yet. But one day we will be. But we begin to take on the traits. So a little question for you. Pause. Are you reflecting in your life the traits of Jesus Christ? And in the areas where you're not, are you actively pursuing them? To mortify, as the old Puritans would say, mortify the flesh. Actively pursue to kill the flesh. Do what is necessary to help kill the flesh. If you're a parent and you have an adolescent teenager, you need to be actively involved in their lives to help pursue the flesh and to kill it in their lives. If you stick an unfiltered computer in their bedroom, go ahead, as one pastor said, put a loaded revolver and a bottle of vodka next to it as well. Because they need help killing the flesh and they lead the parents and the older generation to be engaged in their lives all of us need that but I'm speaking as a parent and I'm speaking to parents and to grandparents 
who are involved to care about that. Our kids so desperately need it. I was talking with Thomas Joyner, who's the leader of Young Life, and he said, you know, Bill, he said, we just aren't having a lot of victories right now in this age group. I was like, I know. And we need to see more victories in this age group. And it's going to take the body of Christ rallying around and saying, come on, let's fight for these things. Sorry, I'll be back to my sermon. Adopted as sons and daughters, you reflect the traits of the Spirit and of the Christian. And then this, the role of the Spirit is this in ending. He reminds you that you are loved and defended. He reminds you that you are loved and defended. It says that he is an advocate that He's given us this Advocate who is with us, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Advocate is a legal term for a defendant of a plaintiff. And the Holy Spirit is your great defender. He defends you against the accusations of the evil one. Who wants to say to you, you? You call yourself a Christian? If they knew what was in your closet, they wouldn't love you. They knew what was down in your basement. They wouldn't love you. You, you could never do this. You're just an orphan. You're unwanted. You're unvaluable. He comes and he defends you against that. He defends you against others who would say that, who are working in cahoots without even really knowing it. Working in cahoots with the evil one to speak to you, other human beings. But he also defends you against you. You're oftentimes your worst critic. You're not kind to your, your heart. And you're not kind to your story. That there is a self-loathing and a self-critique that comes that says, how could I have done that? How could I have ever done that? How could God ever forgive me? And it is the role and the function of the Spirit to apply His Word, this Word, to your heart to say this. No, you. You were purchased. You're forgiven of that. You don't need to ask for forgiveness again. You are beautiful in the sight of God. You are holy. You are blameless. You don't have to prove anything. And it takes you back to the Scriptures over and over again. And it defends you. It defends against the accusations. Have any of you ever experienced an accusation of the evil one? Man, it just pierces. Why is it that, that, the, that the weapons of the Spirit, the spiritual armor... One of them is the shield of faith that basically says when the arrows of the enemy come, they can't pierce and hurt, but they just go like a thud of a firecracker into the ocean. They just go poof. Because you're defended by the Holy Spirit, which says it can't touch your heart. It can't get to you in that. The Holy Spirit defends you. It reminds you that you're loved and cared for. You see, the ultimate reason and result of the Holy Spirit's work in your life is what, Paul, or what Christ says in that final verse, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He gives this unique gift of the Holy Spirit to His church, to His people, so that you will have peace, flourishing shalom in your life. We know who we are. We know whose we are. We know where we're going. And we know the conclusion of the story. So here's my encouragement today. Don't just memorize the lyrics. They're great lyrics. But allow the Holy Spirit to bring about that symphony of music that brings them to life and to be changed. And others will be drawn to you, I promise. 
Others will be drawn to you to come to you to say, I need to be told about this music. I want to hear this music that you're hearing. I need to be reminded of these things because I'm stuck right now. And the world that's looking in is going to go, I want to be a part of whatever this church has. And we present to them Christ and the beauty of what Christ gives. So do you hear the music? Do you hear it? If you do, let's sing it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you for the beauty of it, the preservation of it, the truth of your Holy Spirit, which is given to us now. That is the down payment and the assurance of everything else that you promise. Father, I pray for some here who are really wrestling with this message. They want to believe it, but they can't. There's something inside them that says they could never be forgiven. There's something inside them that says that maybe, maybe they get to be adopted, but they'll never get to sit at the table with you. They'll always be relegated to the shadows. Father, I pray that you administer to those hearts. For others who are battling a battle of the flesh and the spirit, I pray that you give them strength to win the day, strength to win the battle, to keep on fighting. For others who are so wounded that they've just laid down and given up hope, would you rally the church of Jesus Christ that instead of shooting our wounded, we would kneel down that we would weep with them and plead with them and get dirty with them, and that we would love them back to healing and point them towards the true Savior who said, I was wounded on your behalf, and that I am your older brother who loves you. Come home. Father, would you minister powerfully in our place today? Minister to hearts, minister to lives. And would we go from this place with a song to sing, and the world would catch the tune, and hear and believe the lyric, and come and follow you. Be thou our vision, O Lord my God. Amen. Let's stand and sing.